When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we first want to acknowledge who you are. You are our creator, the one who made us, who knows us, who knew us from the beginning of the world and before, and who chose to love us. We thank you for that wonderful privilege. We thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit, that we may be recipients of your grace, that we can be sure of our salvation, and that you are enabling us to spread your gospel and your word to the whole world. Please provide for us all of our needs, both our, both our physical needs and our health, but also our emotional and spiritual needs too, that we may be drawn closer to you, that we may not despair, but be strong in the strength of Christ. Forgive us our sins, for we know that we do sin daily, even though we don't want to, it's something that we all do. Uh, please forgive us this and turn all of our faults uh, into your glory. And teach us to forgive others and keep us away from any sin or wrongdoing that we may be worthy of you. In the name of Christ, amen. Okay. So if we look even just at the context of this, once again, we're in Matthew uh, chapter 6. If we look at the context, you'll see that this is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. So whenever we're trying to figure out what a passage in the Bible means, we want to look at the immediate context. And fortunately, I don't think it's very hard for us to see what Jesus means in the Sermon on the Mount and what he does not intend the Sermon on the Mount to be. So let's start there as a little introduction. Um, Jesus is extremely practical and to the point in the Sermon. He opens it with what we call the Beatitudes. Those are all those lists of blessings that begin, blessed are, so on and so on. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The whole sermon is concerned with our actions and our hearts. It's not abstract theology. Jesus says, you've heard that you should do such and such to please God, but I say you should do this instead. And he gives clear consequences for everything, clear results. For instance, those who show mercy to others will receive mercy from God. 
Now, this might lead some people to treat the Sermon on the Mount kind of like a New Testament Ten Commandments that are just like a list of rules that they think they're supposed to follow. But there's a difference. The Ten Commandments were given to all the Israelites to follow, whether or not they truly followed God in their hearts. This is not the case with the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon is only given to believers, true Christians who have been saved by Christ and have the Holy Spirit within them. In fact, you might say that the Sermon on the Mount is a description of what a fully sanctified Christian looks like. Uh, and as I was going over this, I realized maybe not everyone's really familiar with what sanctification means. That's the process by which the Holy Spirit makes us holy. So when we're first saved, we are saved by our faith in, in Jesus Christ. But we're, not we're justified before God, but we're not completely holy yet because, as we all know, we still sin. But the Holy Spirit is now in us, and it is going to complete the work that Jesus Christ started to make us holy. Okay? So what I'm saying is the Sermon on the Mount is a description of that goal that we are working towards, that the Holy Spirit is drawing us towards. It's the goal that we're running to. Um, we're meant to practice what Jesus tells us to do. Uh, we know we're not going to be saved by good works. But because these good works and good attitudes are the natural signs of being a Christian, um, it's extremely important for us to pay attention and do what Jesus says. Okay? Um, if you'll allow me, I'd like to paraphrase something I read by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. It was just, I, I couldn't say it any clearer than what he did. Um, when he was studying the Sermon on the Mount, he uh, discerned three different principles or three different descriptions of the Christian life in it. Um, and he said a Christian lives his or her life entirely, number one, in the presence of God, number two, in active submission to God, and number three, dependent on God. I'll repeat that really quick. So a Christian lives their life entirely in the presence of God, in active submission to God, and dependent on God. So once again, this is not teaching how a sinner gets saved. Um, Jesus teaches about that later. But this teaches what a person saved by faith will look like in their actions and their heart. So we do have a responsibility. We're to practice these commands. Um, but we know we can't do this on our own strength. Okay? This is not something that we can just do because we're, we're such good Christians or we're so strong-willed or anything like that. We have to fall down on our knees and ask God, our Father, for help. In order to obey, we pray. So how should we pray? Well, we're given a general principle in verse 1 of chapter 6, which applies to all religious actions that we do. Um, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So many people want their religious actions to be noticed by other people that they forget that the only audience that matters is God. If what you want most is for other people to think that you're a good Christian, uh, but you forget that your one purpose in life, your whole reason for living, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, then the praise of other people is all you will get. And when you die, you'll find there's no place for you in heaven. You will already have received your reward here on earth. Instead, present your prayers to God and to God alone. This is our first principle. I'll have to remark another thing that Martin Lloyd-Jones said that struck me. 
he said he also has to apply this to himself when he preaches. The preacher, what I'm doing right now, I'm supposed to be giving my sermon directly before God. I am accountable to him for what I say. Um, even though I'm trying to serve all of you, um, I have to keep in mind who, you know, whose words it is that I'm speaking and who I'm accountable to, uh, which is why I've asked for a lot of your prayers before I stepped up here. Um, anyway, this is our first principle, to offer our prayers to God and God alone. Um, moving forward to verse 6, Jesus says, But when you pray, go into your room, close your door, and pray. So Jesus is t- teaching here about private, personal prayer. Um, the corporate prayer of the body is still important. That's what we call it when we pray out loud in church, as we just did with Ben kindly leading us. Um, you can all, Of course, there's many ways to pray in public, but there's something very personal about all of our prayers. Uh, it has to be personal. Um, when you pray, it's really between you and God. Your goal is to get away from anything that will distract you from him. Forget yourself, forget the presence and the thoughts and opinions of others as best as you can. Um, When you're praying alone, going into your room can be a great way to do this, or any quiet room. Um, The most secret prayer cannot be hidden from God. He will see you, hear you, and reward your faith. But you can do this in public too. You can do it walking down the street. You can do it at work. The key thing is to turn your heart and mind away from your surroundings and towards God. This is why we teach little children to close their eyes and fold their hands when they pray. It's not because it's like a sin to pray with your eyes and your hands open, but closing them just reduces the number of distractions that can distract prayer. Um, So on another thing, the Lord says in verses 7 and 8, And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Do you remember the story of uh, the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal? It's one of the most dramatic stories in the Old Testament. Um, It's found in 1 Kings chapter 18. Um, Basically, Elijah was the last prophet of God in Israel at the time, and the land was full of people who were worshiping an evil idol called Baal. Now, Elijah challenged 500 prophets of Baal to meet him on a mountain called Mount Carmel. The 500 prophets of Baal prayed for hours and hours to their false god, asking him to burn up the sacrifice they had put on an altar. They shouted meaningless words, repeating their prayers over and over again, because they thought that their God would only answer their prayers if they yelled loud enough to annoy him into action. Eventually, they were so exhausted they had to give up, having failed completely. Then Elijah prays one simple, short prayer to God, and God sends down a fire so supernaturally strong that it burns up not just the sacrifice on the altar, but the entire stone altar itself. So don't insult God by trying to treat him like he's a pagan god. Like you have to pester him to get him to pay attention to you. Nor should you think that you have to score points with God when you pray, as if it's a mindless ritual that you can just repeat for prizes. The true God is our Father, and he knows what we need before we ask. And he delights to always provide for us. This, I think, is 
what the Bible means by childlike faith. Asking God in the way that a beloved child asks the father, their father in total assurance of his love and care. So then, is it any wonder that Jesus, when he teaches his disciples how to pray, tells them in verse 9, Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven. Here we are entering God's presence to pray, so of course the first thing we must do is acknowledge who we are praying to. Um, you can address any member of the Trinity when you pray. God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit. That's fine. They all have a part in our salvation. Um, Jesus here is addressing the Father because Jesus is the Son, and he's been sent by the Father to the world, to his disciples, to all of us. Um, and he insists that we also address God as our Father. Um, Romans 8, uh, verse 14 to 17 says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Isn't that encouraging? The absolutely first thing we must do when we pray is to remember that God is not a distant or impersonal power, nor, and he's not some tyrant that you have to uh, prove yourself to. Rather, he loves us and enjoys hearing our prayers. This is something really special, I think. Um, consider there's a sense in which we're always in God's presence, right? We know he's omniscient, he's everywhere, he knows everything. Uh, he's omnipotent, meaning that all the power in the whole universe is his. So there's a sense in which we're always in God's presence, we can never escape from him. He's always watching, he's always in control. But there's another special way in which we enter into God's presence when we pray. Uh, we're turning to him, we're approaching him like a child approaches their father. Um, if you think of uh, that example, pardon me, you know, um, you know the, the, a young child, they kind of assume that their mom or dad knows everything that goes on in the house sometimes. They, they know that they're in their parent's house, and yet when they want to talk to their, their parent or their father, they run to him. They call him, hey, dad. Listen to me, I have something I want to say, you know? And he, those of you who are fathers, um, do you want your children to respect your authority when they come to you? Well, absolutely, but aren't you the happiest when they come to you out of love, not obligation? So I think we should take advantage of this wonderful relationship with God the Father that Christ has given us. So we know we're in God's family. Well, what does that say about where our true home is? Well, Jesus says, our Father who is in heaven. That's a reminder that, well, of a few things. One, even though God is our Father, he is the ruler of all existence. He is the creator, and we must uh, approach him with respect, with awe, not disrespectfully, not flippantly. Um, give him your time, your focus, and above all, your heart. Um, his majesty is real, and it's good to remember that we can never grasp it completely. There truly is a mystery about God which demands our humility and our respect. We're so small and he is so big. But our home, our true home, is in heaven with him. And it is a home. It's not just, no, it's not a, just a hotel or some place that has accommodations in heaven, but we're kind of outsiders 
that is our true home where we will be uh, full sons and heirs. We belong in heaven. So keep that heavenward perspective in all of your prayer. I think it'll help you get some perspective on the various things that you're praying for, uh, the troubles that you have. Keep that heavenward perspective. Uh, in fact, this is why the next part of the Lord's Prayer is so important. Jesus tells us to hallow God's name. Um, to hallow is to make holy or to set apart. Um, and by God's name, Jesus means everything that is God's person, his character, his actions, etc. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're acknowledging uh, that God is holy, righteous, and perfect in all he does. He doesn't have the faults that earthly fathers do. And we're also very aware of our own sinfulness in comparison uh, with his holiness. But this shouldn't overwhelm us. After all, haven't we just been reminded that God is our Father? He wants to hear us and help us, and he never fails to do what he wants. But there's more than that that we do when we pray, hallowed be your name. Uh, we're also expressing our desire that the rest of the world would hallow God's name. His goodness deserves to be praised and adored by all of his creation. We want everyone and everything to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we have to remember ourselves in this too. As children of God, we represent him to the world. We want God to be glorified in us. Now, Jesus already prepared this part of the prayer. Um, if you look back into chapter 5, verse 16, he says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine before men. What is this light that Christians are supposed to shine before the rest of the world? It's the faith that gives birth to good works that Jesus describes in the Beatitudes and in the whole rest of the sermon. We have to pray for this because we're still entangled in sin, but God will happily grant our prayers when we submit to him. Because of sin, we deserve God's wrath, but instead, through Christ, we receive mercy and grace. So next, we pray, your kingdom come. This is a this follows on logically from hallowed be your name, because as soon as we have prayed hallowed be your name, we realize but the world doesn't hallow God's name at all. So how does God's kingdom come? Well, I think there's actually two ways we can understand the term kingdom of God. Um, there's something we could call the kingdom of grace, and that's what's present in the hearts of every Christian. Every heart in which the Holy Spirit lives is like a little colony of the kingdom of of God's grace. This is what John the Baptist and Jesus himself meant when they would preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Evangelism is about spreading this kingdom. We desire that the whole world hear the gospel of Jesus Christ so that everyone whom God has called will become part of the kingdom of grace. And this is the part of the prayer where it's good to focus on missions. We pray for other missionaries who are doing the work. We pray for the church's outreach things like that. Um, and even for ourselves, we'll pray that, we should pray that we don't miss opportunities to spread the gospel. Um, but of course, those of us who have read the Bible, we know that there is also another kingdom of God which has not yet arrived. This is the kingdom of glory when Jesus comes for a second time in his human body and establishes his reign over all creation. Okay? 
This is the second coming, the day of judgment. There's a lot of different names for it. Um, but it's at this time that the whole world will hallow God's name. All sin and sorrow and evil will go away. Peace and happiness will overflow for all who are saved in Christ. The dead believers will be resurrected, and all believers from across history will rejoice together in Jesus' presence with our new bodies and our new home in heaven. It will be everything that we are waiting for, everything that we have been promised. And so our lives must be characterized by our desire for this kingdom. Here in our prayer, we remind ourselves that Jesus is coming again. The second coming, this kingdom of glory, should fill us with several things. With joy, because the whole family of Christians will be joined together to receive their rewards. Um, it fills me with awe when I think of it, at God's power and perfection. But it should also give us an urgency for evangelism. For everyone who doesn't have faith in Jesus when this kingdom of glory arrives, will be cast into hell. We're told that this day will come soon, and even unexpectedly. And we mustn't forget that the great work of evangelism that God intends all of us to participate in. After all, it's only when we're part of God's kingdom that we can really do his will, in the sense of recognizing him and obeying him. We know God's completely sovereign over the whole world, but the world doesn't do God's will with love because it cannot escape. Well, the world does his love, or does his will, I'm sorry, um, in the sense that it cannot escape God's power, it cannot thwart God in any way. Um, but it doesn't do it God's will with love. Um, and in heaven, God's will is carried out in perfect joy and harmony and love for him. So that's, that's the result that we're ultimately praying for. Uh, when we pray to God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's what we're praying for, that the way people serve God on earth will ultimately be as perfect and harmonious as the way it is done in heaven. And this is our greatest happiness. This is the, the purpose of human life. You know, philosophers are always trying to ask, what's the purpose, or what's the meaning of life? Well, we know what the meaning of life is. It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's why we're here. And it's our, it's our greatest happiness. It's what we're created for. So stands to reason, shouldn't we desire this for all of humanity? The highest form of love for our fellow man is to desire that they would do God's will on earth just as it is done in heaven, because that would mean that they are full children of God, citizens of the kingdom of grace, and as truly happy and complete as they can be. So when you pray this part of the prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, don't neglect the matter of your own spiritual happiness and the spiritual happiness that you desire for everyone around you. You won't always feel happy. Many faithful Christians throughout history have known incredible sorrow and deep depression. For many, it, it may last until the end of their earthly lives. We don't know why God heals some people of these things and not others. But we do know this, that all such sorrow and hurt will be healed when Christ comes again. When you feel that you lack joy and happiness in your spirit, pray about it. It's something that God can help you with, and the only real answer is prayer. And I think this is also part of what, God, uh, what Jesus means when he tells us to ask God to 
Give us this day our daily bread. The bread in this verse represents all of our physical needs. In fact, all of our needs, our physical needs certainly, food, water, shelter, health, protection from coronavirus, that's all included. But I think it also includes our mental and emotional needs. Remember first that the order of the Lord's Prayer is important. Um, Jesus doesn't do things out of order. He doesn't do things carelessly. So when he teaches an order, there's a value to it. There's an importance. So first, we've acknowledged and praised God. Then we pray for his kingdom and the working out of his will on earth. And then we ask for our personal needs. Um, It doesn't mean that our needs are not important. I mean, they're they're included in the prayer. Um, And to be included in the Lord's Prayer uh, is to be considered worthy of God's most intense concern. God takes our needs seriously. He knows we need food and water and shelter from the weather. He knows we need health and medicines when we get sick. It's not wrong to ask for these things. Uh, Not for ourselves or for those around us. After all, one of the names of God is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Everything is God's to give and take away. We rely completely on him. There's no such thing as self-sufficiency. That's one of the things that sets the Christian church apart from the rest of the world right now. Everyone wants to think that they can be self-sufficient. Well, Christians know the truth. We're not self-sufficient. There's no such thing as self-sufficiency. But when you think of how we rely on God, remember also how he clothes and feeds the sparrows, the animals and the plants and everything. He takes care of them. So pray for what you need and God will gladly provide everything you need and even more that you didn't even ask about. Um, In a practical matter, you don't have to list or itemize every single one of your needs one by one and stay there for, you know, six hours because you're trying to rack your brain. Oh, did I forget something? Oh, no, you know, what if I, what if I forgot to pray for something? Don't worry about that. Um, in verse 8 of chapter 6, Jesus says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. And frankly, even if you don't ask him. Tell him what's on your heart and trust him to give you what is best. Um, another little note that I was reminded of um, Do be careful when you pray uh, of your needs because there's no mention here of praying for luxuries. Um, Our flesh wants many things which it doesn't need. Uh, Of course, you need healthy food, but do you really need junk food? Uh, I know some kids might insist that they really do, but frankly, that's why they need to listen to their parents more (laughs) about what to eat. Um, The point is consider what you're asking for and what you want carefully. Check your desires against the Bible. This doesn't mean that you can't have or enjoy luxuries at at different times, um, but you have to consider them in perspective. Uh, When you are coming before the creator of the universe, don't ask him for trivial things. Think of it this way. We've established that God wants to provide for you. He wants to help you. That means he wants to give you the absolute best that he can. So we should ask for the absolute best that we can could possibly get. Don't ask for trivial things that are, that are not even worth it, that are not important. Um, focus on what is actually needful, what is actually important and helpful. Um, God wants to give you the best things available. 
Um, see, what, see what glorifies God and ask him for those things. Examine your own motivation, motivations. Sorry. Uh, when I look at myself, I find that if I stick closely to the pattern of prayer that Jesus shows us here, um, that it becomes easier for me to tell which of my desires have a holy purpose and which are really just about satisfying my own selfish wants. Um, it does help put things in perspective. But of course we're going to mess up with this. Okay? Uh, we'll find ourselves praying selfishly every day. We sin, we do wrong things, um, we get focused on things that are not important. So, moving on in the, in the prayer, Jesus shows us how to pray for forgiveness. Forgive us our debts. Other translations will say debt transgressions or sins. It, practically, it's all the same. It's, we do something wrong against God, and now we owe him something that we can't pay back on our own. Um, our bodies, including our minds, are still poisoned by sin, even though our spirits have been set free. If you're a Christian, your spirit has been set free. Um, it's it's been uh, helped by the Holy Spirit, but our bodies, including our minds, are still sinful. And so we, stin we struggle daily with sin. Um, we're not better than anyone else in this respect. We can claim no self-righteousness before God. So we always need pardon and grace. We are waging a war against sin. The weapons in this war are not our good works, but the graces and mercies of God. His promises in the Bible, the saving work of Jesus Christ, and importantly, prayer. Prayer is where we cast ourselves into the arms of God in order to escape our enemies, sin and Satan. Um, in John chapter 13, verse 10, Jesus told a man that he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. By this he meant that our salvation is secure in him, so we don't need to keep asking to be saved as if we thought we were still unbelievers. I've seen people do this. Um, I've seen professing Christians go down at altar calls at a school rally or chapel or at certain churches and they'll go and they'll ask Jesus into their hearts like multiple times as if that will somehow change what's in their life and this is wrong. Once you're saved, you are truly completely saved. You don't need that kind of salvation again. Uh, in the metaphor Jesus uses, you don't need to be bathed completely again once you have been totally bathed. Um, to keep doing that is to imply that you don't have faith in what Christ first did for you. But, as we've seen, even true Christians will still commit sin in spite of what their spirits want to do. So that's the, the washing of the feet in the, uh, in the metaphor that Jesus uses. And it's for these sins that we must pray daily and continually ask to be forgiven. Uh, but there's another part to that line in the, in the prayer. Um, we also sometimes fall into the sin of not forgiving others. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Hypocrisy is always fiercely condemned by God. If we jump past the Lord's Prayer to verses 14 and 15, we see him repeat this. If we do not forgive those who wrong us, God will refuse to forgive us our sins. Whatever your theology is, you cannot afford to dismiss this. 
Jesus says it in the prayer that our forgiveness is linked to our forgiving others. And then of all the parts of that prayer, this is the one part that he repeats at the end. After he said amen, he comes back to say, hey, remember this part that I, this is the part I want you to really focus on. Um, Maybe he thought his disciples wouldn't take that part as seriously as he meant to be the first time. I don't know. Um, But the message is clear. If you pray with malice in your heart towards anyone, your prayer will not be heard by God. If you're refusing to forgive someone um, when it has come to your attention, then you cannot expect to be forgiven by the Father. Okay, so don't even pray self-righteously for someone else. We have that example in the Pharisees. You know, dear Heavenly Father, please help so-and-so stop being such a sinner or stop being a jerk. Um, you know, I, can't, I guess they can't help it, but maybe you can help them. Thank you for not making me like them. That's how the Pharisees prayed, and God hates it. Um, it's a terrifying reality if you start to think about it and examine your own heart, because um, I think we've all done that at various times. And how can you deny that God is just? Well, pray for help in this too. Pray that God would reveal to you everyone whom you need to forgive and ask him for the strength and the love to forgive them with the same completeness and the grace that he has forgiven you. Next, we also pray as a bulwark against temptation. So temptation is everything that tries to pull us into sin. Everyone is weak to certain temptations. Um, When Jesus tells us in verse 13 to ask God to uh, lead us not into temptation, I think this means that we're to confess our weaknesses to God and ask for his help against them. Uh, Not just sins that we've already committed, as we had already prayed for, but confess also the temptations that are dangerous to us. Recognize their danger. Um, I think there are some Christians uh, who may think themselves spiritually strong for various reasons. Maybe they're raised in a Christian home. They spend a lot of time in the Bible. They're very sincere in their love for the Lord. Um, but I've heard over, over my lifetime, um, some people say that, you know, they don't mind exposing themselves to various sinful things because they, they're confident they can resist temptation. You know, they'll say something like, oh, you know, isn't it good for unbelievers to see how, good, how, how strong a Christian can be in their faith that a Christian has no fear of sin's temptations? You know, I can do this or watch that or go to this place or whatever. And even though, yeah, I know it's, you know, what they're doing in these places or this show or whatever is really bad, um, but, you know, I'm confident I can... I'm strong enough in my faith I can resist the temptation. I'm not, you know, some newborn Christian. All I can say to this is no, no. Um, God tells you to to flee temptation um, and to pray against it. It's one thing if you find yourself in a tempting situation. Maybe you had a little control over it. Maybe you uh, made a mistake. Um, Or it's also a different thing if you're taking certain risks for the purposes of spreading the gospel or helping someone else. It's another thing to seek out temptation to try and prove your spiritual strength. People who do that inevitably fall into sin, at the very least the sin of pride, whether or not they realize it at the time, and they prove only their immaturity. If this has happened to you, and I know it's happened to me before, this kind of false pride and my supposed spiritual strength, uh, don't be discouraged. God knows your weaknesses in this matter, as in everything, and that's 
why he tells us to pray daily for forgiveness and to ask the Father's help in avoiding temptation. Um, so don't minimize the danger of temptation, but also don't get discouraged um, when you fall weak to it. Pray against it. Pray for help against it, and God will help you. Uh, and let's not forget the last petition. The full sentence that Jesus uses is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Evils uh, is not just the clutches of Satan and sin, but I think it also applies to bad situations which hurt our lives. Um, evil danger in the world, evil in our own hearts, and terrible catastrophes as well. It's not wrong to ask for safety. Uh, even from natural disasters, for diseases or wars, and so on, we know that God's in control, and we know that God has not promised us a safe life. He has not promised us comfortable lives. Okay? We suffer persecution for our faith, and if when we do, we're supposed to consider it a privilege. But that doesn't mean that we have to rejoice at tragedy itself. We rejoice in God's sovereignty, in his love, um, in the salvation that he's given us in Jesus Christ. But you don't have to rejoice at something terrible happening. Um, it's right to pray for our own safety and the safety of others, not out of fear of these things, but out of a hatred of evil itself. We submit always to God's will, um, but we know that he does desire good for us and he will protect us. And there are many examples in the Bible of God answering people's prayer and protecting people um, because they prayed sincerely for protection. But it's also worth noticing where in the prayer this petition falls. It's at the end, the lowest priority. Not unimportant. You should still pray for these things. Um, but keep them in perspective. And the prayer ends with praise. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is a summary of the most important lessons that the rest of the prayer says in greater detail. All kingdoms that exist belong to the Father, this world, heaven, and the hearts of all people. All power comes from God, all glory rightfully goes to him, and when we say amen at the end of a prayer, we are rejoicing in all these things. We acknowledge that God has complete rule over our lives, that he will answer prayers in his own manner, not in ours. Some of our requests he'll grant, some he won't. But our goal is to always glorify him for who he is and to worship him no matter what happens. So what have we learned through all of this? What, what does the Lord's Prayer teach us? What does the Lord's Prayer teach us? Well, for one thing, uh, we see that this is a prayer of equipping. It, it equips us to be followers of Christ. It gives us the tools that we need to serve God, to be Christians. Um, so it begins by turning us in the right direction. It reminds us of who God is and who we are in relation to him. We're adopted children of a loving Heavenly Father. And it shows us what the purpose of human life is. It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It shows us what we are to do here on earth. We're to spread his kingdom and to see his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it gives us the tools we need to fight against our basic needs, against sin, against temptation. And it has us ask for protection against things that hurt us. 
So the Lord's Prayer is a pattern. I've talked about the order and the pattern of the prayer. Uh, Jesus starts it with, pray then in this way. Now, you can absolutely pray it word for word. A lot of different churches uh, ask people to do that. That's fine, but don't do it mindlessly. Okay? Don't just repeat it as a ritual, as a mantra, as a chant. Um, if you do, really think of what it means. Pray it sincerely. Um, but you can also just take it as a framework and fill in the details that are specific to your life. Um, it's a pattern. And don't judge yourself too harshly if you don't hit each element of the Lord's Prayer in your own prayers. Um, I've been, as I was preparing this whole message, I was trying to practice the prayer a lot, practice this whole idea of it being a framework where I follow the pattern. Um, and I think there was a lot of good from it, but it, it can be difficult. I know there were times I skipped parts or I, I just uh, I, I jumped to one part instead of others. I think it's good to try and follow the order that Jesus shows us um, for the reasons that I discussed about how it helps us get the right perspective. But God knows our weaknesses, and he doesn't judge by our outward appearances and words. He judges by the heart. Um, in a crisis or weariness or some other situation, our hearts might just cry out imperfectly but sincerely to our Father in heaven and he will accept those prayers just as much as the more careful, deliberate ones. So pray sincerely without malice or bitterness towards others and let go of any sin that entangles you. Um, but again, do try to practice the model. I find that if I'm agitated or stressed, um, you know, I'll reach out to pray for something that might be angering me. Um, and there could be a danger in, you know, praying with the wrong motivations. But if I force myself to follow this pattern by first acknowledging who God is, praising him, remembering my role in spreading the kingdom, um, and all of that, all before I get to my own request, then it really does put my life into perspective. Um, I might catch myself in uh, my sinful thought as I'm going through the whole uh, framework. And it can calm me down, it humbles me, and just it makes me more ready to receive the Holy Spirit's instruction. So I do encourage you to try and practice this model regularly um, and pray about it. You will encounter difficulties when you pray. Uh, distractions crop up. Uh, sinful thoughts will make you feel unworthy to approach God. Uh, but the closer we get to the Lord, the more Satan attacks us. The more sin will try to make us slip. Don't get discouraged. That's why we're praying. That's all the more reason to pray. Pray against the distractions. Pray for focus and for grace. Uh, and don't stop there. Ask others to pray for your prayer life. If you're using the word pray a lot, you'll say, please, no, so-and-so, please help pray that. I will pray better. I've done that a lot, but it's a, it's a good thing to pray for. Um, remember your priorities. Kneeling down and saying nice words for 5, 10, 15 minutes is not your priority. Glorifying God and enjoying him is. So uh, if you start to pray and you find that you're suddenly thinking about those curtains should really be dusted or oh, I should probably go wash the dishes that are piled up in the sink or oh, I should pay that bill, it's been going on too long. Those are probably things you should forget about and pray first. Take care of those after you pray. Uh, those are the sorts of things that Satan will use to try and distract you from your time with God. But 
if, as you start to pray, you remember that you haven't confessed something to someone that you've wronged, or you haven't forgiven someone who needs forgiveness, or you haven't asked forgiveness for someone in your house, or, you, or if you think of any other thing that the Lord would have you settle immediately before you pray, that's when you can get up from your quiet place, take care of that issue, that sin which is waiting to attack you. And if, you, if it can be done right then, take care of it right then, and then go back to your prayer. Um, that way you'll have removed something which is waiting to attack you while you're praying that would try to distract you or make you feel unworthy. Um, and lastly, I return to the beginning. God is our Father. He loves us and he desires us to be close to him. I believe that he tells us to pray often, not just because it's good for us, but because he likes us. God enjoys his children. It delights him when we come to him out of love, telling him honestly of our struggles and needs. He loves our hearts. 